I'm Janet Mock, and this is Never Before. Today's guest gave me a whole new reverence for my 15-year-old self. When I was a high school freshman, I was just embarking on my transition, super eager to reintroduce myself as Janet to my classmates. I was so busy then trying to be myself that I didn't have the capacity to focus on the world around me. And that's probably what I admire most about the stars of this generation. Amanda Stenberg, Yara Shahidi, Zendaya, and today's guest, Rowan Blanchard. These stars center themselves while also carrying super demanding careers. They use their voices to educate their fans and ignite social change. That's quite a feat, regardless of your age. Blanchard made her acting debut at age five, and at 12, she was cast as Riley Matthews in Girl Meets World, the sequel to my generation's super beloved Boy Meets World. And Corey and Tabanga, our faves, play her parents. I feel fucking old too. There's something about Rowan that separates her from the Disney stars of the past. Demi Lovato, Miley Cyrus, and Selena Gomez seem to have been so contained under Disney's grasp. And that made way for public rebellion. But Rowan has always been herself. And she uses social media to advance subjects that are important to her. Like, this girl has published full-throated critiques of white feminism. That's a boss. I speak with Rowan about acting and activism and being her own kind of teen idol. I am so excited to be here with Rowan Blanchard. Hey. The amazing writer, activist, advocate, actress, star of Girl Meets World. Thanks for having me. You're leading a show. You're having to go to school in between that, right? You're carving out time for that, which I'm sure is like there's boundaries around that and regulations around that. Yeah. And then on top of that, you're also doing this other piece, which is like the social activism piece where you're also writing in, in that space. Yeah. How do you find a balance between these three... I guess they're connected because they're connected through you, but how do you find the time to to shuffle or balance all three of those? I guess it helps that when I'm filming, I have to do school within that. Acting kind of serves in that way as a sort of therapy. Because when I'm posting about, you know, social issues or things like that, and I'm engaging in like pretty heavy conversations that I'm trying to make accessible in a way where it doesn't oversimplify them, but while it doesn't alienate people who are trying to understand what's going on. What made you take on that role to process in public in that way? I think I was always processing publicly. Even before I had social media, I've always been one that just, I wear my heart my sleeve, you know, my emotion from how I look. I'm very telling, like I don't really keep many secrets. And I just remember in elementary school, we had like a few projects where we would have to study women's rights and the civil rights movement and just things like that. And I just remember like having a lot of thoughts that I guess we're technically mature for my age and just wanting to like really think about these things rather than talk about them for a day in class. And what were one of those thoughts that like, what was your one of your first sparks? I guess I was just wondering why we studied these things for like an hour (laughs) and then we studied like George Washington for like a month. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I, I just started thinking about those things and then middle school came along and I sort of matured very, very quickly As soon as you do like a TV show, immediately you're just like this thing. (laughs) 
And so I just kind of noticed that shift. And all of my friends have always been older my entire life. So I've always kind of been around that and how people who are older than me got treated. And if you start experiencing like catcalling and things that are like more obvious and then you, I don't know, I think I just started to say my feelings like as I was processing them. I feel like even when I'm writing things on social media, I'm not necessarily taking a second, maybe I should, to like think about what it is I'm saying. Like I feel like I'm very much processing that as I'm writing it, as I'm posting about it. There must be a piece that's isolating when you're in that space of traditional school, right? Yeah. And you're also on, say, television or appearing in a movie, and Mm -hmm. you then become almost like an object, an object of fascination, whereas why does she have that? Is that the social dynamics that you're going through? There were just some weird things. I remember when I initially booked it, I didn't want it to be this type of thing where it's like, I'm above you because I'm doing this. Like, I wanted it to just be like this one cohesive thing of like, yeah, I'm going to school, but I'm also doing this. But like, that's okay because you have your things too. Mine's just like more public. Mm. I still think about that a lot. I think that's why I have fewer friends, like friends my age, just because it's, you have to be like careful with that whole objectification thing, I think is really a part of your life when you commit to something like, especially TV. Because TV, you're like in somebody's home and it's really personal. And it's also not just any TV. It's Disney, which is its own. It's Disney, which is its own market and brand and thing. And when you're signing up for their show, you're signing up for a lot more than that. And people immediately think of Disney people a certain way kind of being like these people that they grow up with so you're just kind of playing a tons of things for an audience at once which is why I think sometimes people on Disney can kind of very quickly blend into the next thing that they want to be Mm -hmm. perceived as because you're forced to like act as so many people. Well, it must be interesting in the sense of you spend your entire days with adults, right? The crew Mm -hmm. is adults, the writers are adults, your director is an adult, your co-stars mostly are adults, probably except maybe a couple of your best friends on the show. Right. And But then you're creating content for young people, for your peers. Yeah. And so how is it to be in this space of actor, artist, professional, young person, and then on top of that, performing for role modeldom for an entire generation. It's very complicated. Like, I'm not going to lie. On a set, like, I'd be lying to tell you if I didn't have to, like, be an adult on a set where I'm working on. And when you're not an adult, like, you can just kind of be a problem and you get labeled that way. And I mean, of course, I still feel like I have this, like, wonderful childhood, but I do feel like there's a shift when I step onto set and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm working now. And it's strange to have that type of feeling, especially when you're entertaining kids, which is why I think it was helpful for us to have live audiences and to be able to work with that and to be able to feel very tangibly how our audience reacted. There was a real connection between you performing and right. having your audience right there in front of you. Right. I think immediately after the pilot premiered, which was like, I think still our highest rated episode, I went to Europe to promote the show and I just remember kind of walking through the airport and people just kind of looking at me, not like totally sure who it was that they were looking at, but just kind of a little glance. And I mean, there was a part of that that was very, very exciting. And then there was a part of it that was like, wait, it's not just acting anymore. It's like a brand, (laughs) which is 
very strange when you think about it. But it's also strange to be 11 or 12 and having yeah. that that shift. And also the, I assume, which would be a heavier burden of yeah. having to perform yourself. It's a strange thing. I remember having the shift because how I was talking about, I always kind of wear my heart on my sleeve. In that way, I think... In public, I am always wearing whatever expression I feel at the moment. So, I mean, I'm, I was kind of used to at the time, like, just being able to, like, cry if I wanted to and, like, be mad if I wanted to. And and then I was also noticing because early on in interviews during the premiere of the show, like, the first thing I would get asked is, so are you going to be, like, a Miley, a Selena, or a Demi? Was no like, identity at all, right? No, it's just no like, identity. These are the three, the three options that you have for yourself. To the slip three into. options. One. Exactly. And I was just like, A, I'm like 12. <laughs> and B, I'm so confused what that even means right now. What do you think they meant by asking that? I mean, I think I knew. I just didn't want to say it. I mean, we all saw the whole like the Miley thing. And when it when she started shifting to becoming, I guess, herself and how Demi went through a very public transition that is a part of a private life. And I think it's very interesting how we judge somebody's public private life. I mean, having experienced just a small fraction of what they've experienced, it's incredibly scary, I guess, to not only have to check in with yourself, but have to check in to make sure that your audience doesn't think that you're like crazy. So I think that's a lot of pressure and something that Disney definitely doesn't warn you about because you really are becoming this addition to somebody's home. You're becoming another family member. So they, there's a definite sense of like, I own you, like I have you in my home. There's like such a severe kind of tentacle with someone's television because it's yep. in the home, right? There's like that intimacy that's there. And so there, like you said, there's that ownership yep. of you. How do you, how do you process, explore and declare your own identity that's a private identity, mm. but then also having to do that publicly? I think in order to prevent having to go through a public-private transition, I just tried to be myself on my social media as much as I can. Like, I just wanted to, like, okay, I'm on this channel. This channel doesn't reflect everything about me. Here's my Instagram, which shows a bit more about me, and it's just what I believe in. And so I think that's kind of maybe subconsciously why I started to talk about these things was because I didn't want to have to, like, have the show end and then have this weird like six month period of being like Big I'm break not up. on Disney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so social media seemed to be a space in which you found definitely an outlet to express grander ideas about gender and feminism and yeah. race and representation. Yeah. When did you first feel like you stepped forward as a young feminist? I mean, I had been commenting on things, I guess a lot on Tumblr and, you know, reblogging things and learning a lot about feminism through Tumblr. Which Tumblr I guess woke me all the way up. Yeah. People, you know, discredited as as a source of like really vital, important information, but I've been using Tumblr really for I think since I was ten, which was probably too young to own a Tumblr, but So who got you that? Did you just my like cousin. make up an age? <laughs> My, I probably made up an age, but my cousin um, was like, there's this website, Tumblr, Rowan. I think you should really like it. <laughs> so I created an account. And I, I see now why Tumblr is toxic in many ways. But during the time of like me discovering feminism, it was really, really important uh, for me to be able to see the sides of feminism that were intersectional and talked about race and gender rather than just gender. 
And how did you know to challenge that? I know you you discussed previously about coming to feminism and having a very basic understanding, right? The, yeah. It's about the equality of, you know, men and women or yeah. boys and girls, whatever, you know. And then how then do you go and say, hmm, what was that awakening for you? What were your steps towards complicating that basic level of understanding between like the battle of the sexes? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I mean, definitely was what I was first introduced to was like, kind of the aestheticized pink neon posts that are like boys and girls should be equal or like feminism the radical notion that women are people <laughs> I'm like oh that sounds like something I can get behind and I think at the time it was a really easy definition to process and to understand and to be like okay this I got like this makes sense I'm a feminist yeah and then I think it was during the time of uh, Sandra Bland's murder. How old were you when Sandra Bland died? I was 13 and a half. And I saw a post or two on Tumblr. And at first, you know, I scrolled by because oh, it doesn't apply to me. And then, you know, you check again. I would check Instagram. And I started looking at these things which were taught to me by the news as, oh, anarchist, crazy, people trying to ruin our system. Um, and I started looking at them from the actual voices that they were coming from, like these Tumblr accounts. And I just sort of put two and two together and was like, oh, right. <laughs> like, I am not every woman. <laughs> and then somebody asked me on Tumblr, because I think at this same time where I was kind of discovering everything, and I heard the term white feminism, white feminism, like making headlines. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? So I, I know just, someone outright asked you on your Tumblr and you replied. Yes. Yeah, somebody outright asked me on Tumblr, um, Rowan, what are your thoughts on white feminism? And this time I really didn't fully understand what that meant. So I looked up, you know, white feminism and uh, what is intersectional feminism and then led to that to like Audre Lorde and like people who I would not have been led to in like this very white aestheticized version of feminism. And I think I just started processing all of this and understanding, oh yeah, that makes sense. Oh yeah, I remember having a thought in my head in elementary school that I would not associate myself with now. What was one of those thoughts? I remember we had a little girl in our class who's... Um, little sister had braids and I remember there were girls in my class that would make fun of her hair and like I went along with what my friends were saying was like oh yeah why does she have her hair like that and then you know the whole thing of like can I touch your hair can I touch your hair so I I, I mean I remember that now and just I think Amandala put out a video uh, during, yeah at the same time about this that was about cultural appropriation in pop culture and she put it in terms that were, once again, like not super duper complicated to understand, but had enough complexity for me to be like, oh, right, I understand this. What's so powerful is like this sense of the younger mills. Um, you all have this way of educating one yeah. another. It seems like it's more of like a peer review, yeah. in process kind of awakening. You know, I, I think about who I grew up with, mm. right? Like I had... You know, I had Destiny's Child, so like mm. I was like, you know, a Beyonce fan, yeah. hugely. But before then, she was mostly on the, you know, can you pay my bills? You know, independent yeah. woman. There was like some feminism in totally. there. Um, but then even before that, thinking about like Britney and In Sync, and they were all kind of pushing out this like 
purity Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Like that was their activism was like totally. we're good girls and we're boys. Pure. We're yeah. pure. Like that was, yeah. you know, that was our role model them. Yeah. But then, you know, we have now we have mm-hmm. these young leaders and I wonder how much of that is the peer group of it in the sense of like you're all pushing each other to make these grander, bigger statements that are a lot more intersectional and outspoken. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what drew me to it was because it wasn't a thing where I had to like do it by myself. It was like this thing with like, yeah, you can be a part of this, but you're going to like get in the back and join with a bunch of other people. That's something that I think really does separate my generation from other generations, even those that are, you know, 20, 25. The teenagers of this generation who have just had access to the internet their whole life, haven't really known a life without it, are really taking the time to be like, okay, if you don't understand this, I'm just going to explain it to you. And it doesn't come across in a super harsh way either. It's it's genuinely wanting this person to understand what's going on, not in a way that ever feels shoving it in your face. It's it's there's always like a actual conversation there. I notice a lot of adults are like, wow, it's so amazing that you post that on Instagram. But I'm like, I don't even think about that because it's like, this is my generation. I always am fascinated by this sense of like this objectification of age. Do you feel that sense of like this, like, oh my God, because you're so young and you have this quote unquote wokeness or this political Mm -hmm. awareness and you express those ideas that older people tend to then like not fetishize you, but... Do you, are you aware of that at all? Totally. Or do you feel that or am I just putting words in your mouth? No, 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 totally. Yeah, I noticed that with a lot of people in my age group who write and have an audience. There's such that, oh my God, she wrote this and she's 16. <laughs> or there's like the weird Well, I'm guilty because I, I felt the same way too. You know, well, like even I as I'm it, like interrogating it, I also then feel it. Like I'm like, what yeah. was I doing when I was 16? I guess where it gets kind of annoying for me is when people use it as a way to like compare me to other teenagers because I have moms reach out to me or like you're doing this at 15 my daughter isn't doing this at 15 and I'm like okay I don't want to like bash your daughter what the heck (laughs) I'm not here to do that you guys it's a weird thing because I know that it comes from a genuine curiosity but I guess it's different from my generation looking at it because it's like we just always had access to this information whereas your guys' generation hasn't like didn't have the internet Mm -hmm. and there were no telephones or cars or anything yeah there was you know there's nothing there's no electricity yeah yeah no electricity um so Oh, just really, really old. <laughs> and well, I was having this moment. I was like, wait, always my barometer was my younger brother, Jeffrey, who is six years younger than me. And he was born in 1990 or 89, 89. Okay. And so like he was young to me. And then I realized that when you were born, I was like a senior in high school. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, the age thing. Because I just, it's like my generation is like, you guys, I can just look this up on Google. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> but but yeah. don't you find that so many people don't do that work, though, even if they know that it's there, they expect... Oftentimes in in a lot of this movement work, there's a sense of like, educate me about your experience instead of just going out and getting. Yeah. Women have to explain feminism to men. And then, you know, black people have to explain racism to white people. And it's like this whole thing of like, I don't want to look it up for myself. So you just explain it to me, which I think I probably dabbled in a little bit. But then it comes to a certain point where like the research becomes, I think, a part of your like personal journey. And I think once you realize even if it doesn't seem like it does affect you in a negative way, somebody else's oppression affects you in a positive way. So it does somehow incorporate you into it. So it's not like we're totally safe from anything, if that makes sense. 
No, it does make sense. And I think you've modeled allyship in this really great way in the sense of, you know, using your platform that you have to talk about issues that may not necessarily be personal for you in that sense, but they're political for you. Yeah. And thinking about how you've also then gone and I'm sure inspired a lot of young people who may not understand like race and representation in that Mm. same way. And how have you seen yourself or maybe not, maybe you don't see yourself as successful in that sense of going out and giving people the tools to be able to access this information that's like intersectionality. How do you explain intersectionality to someone? I think Uh, The first time I wrote about it, while I guess it looked at a pretty inclusive version of feminism, I still feel like it was a sort of feminism that was, while I was talking about intersectionality, it um, still felt not as entirely inclusive as I would like to think of myself now. And I think talking about intersectionality on Instagram, I try to be very careful with because I realize like... As an ally of most of the communities that I'm advocating for the rights for, I don't want to like step in front and like take over. So for me, it's a lot of it is about redirecting people to certain books by authors of color rather than by a white person explaining racism. (laughs) So I guess I'm trying to like redirect sources to something like Sonia Sanchez or like Audre Lorde. You know, I'm always afraid of becoming someone's like problematic fave. And so like a oh, part of me God. sometimes is like a censor, not a censoring, but like, am I being as inclusive as possible in every statement yeah. that I'm making? Is that something that you feel on your show is as you're like, you're holding your phone in the dark and yep, tweeting? Definitely. With this sort of culture on Twitter, I think Twitter specifically, that has come along with like, I'm going to educate you, I'm going to educate you, has also come along with this like, you're not doing it exactly how I want you to do it. And then there's that whole thing of like, yeah, you're my problematic fave. You're so problematic. And I'm like, yeah, everybody's problematic because everybody's just learning here. Mm. Yeah. My friend Dev Hines directed a music video. And this Blood Orange? Yes. Oh, I love their work. Yeah. Seriously. Um, they directed this music video and it was a huge deal that they directed it. Like they were really, really proud of it. And then a bunch of people were commenting like, why couldn't you have had more body representation? And it was just this really frustrating thing of being like, well, let them have their moment of like being a queer artist of color, directing their own music video. Like that's amazing. And it's just, there was a lot of sides to it where I was like, I don't want to be the kind of accountability holding culture where we're like critiquing every single thing we see instead of looking for what's good about it first because I think a that makes it really difficult for teens to speak out and I feel like the most important thing we need right now is for teens to speak out and if we're making it into like the world that it already is for teens which is like you're doing this wrong you're doing this wrong And then if those teens are trying to speak out about things that are really important on Twitter and Instagram and they don't use the exact correct language, then rejecting their personal activism, I think, is a lot more damaging. Yeah. Well, there's a sense of like um, disposing of people once they mess up. Definitely. I mean, I experience that a lot. Just part of the reason I kind of delete Twitter after I tweet something, (laughs) because I think people are really searching for something that is not there. For example, Sasha Lane, she was this actress in American Honey. When she was cast in this movie about 
to lesbian girls who go to conversion therapy somebody immediately tweeted yeah (laughs) uplifting (laughs) somebody immediately tweeted and was like why couldn't they have cast a gay girl to play somebody who was gay and she responded and she was like you know nothing about my life (laughs) calm down which is really true i think we don't know a lot of somebody's personal life we don't know how they see their gender how they see their sexuality unless they have explicitly told us and even when they've explicitly told us we don't know the full details of it there's this constant Um, assuming of people's identities i think right we kind of do just based on image or whatnot right based on how somebody presents um and so i think the way she handled that was really perfect because it's like you don't you don't know what she's done. You don't know her life and you don't know like what's going on. And on um, Twitter, you also then, as you're processing, you know, sexual and gender identity. Yeah. I'm assuming as your um, exposure to different genders and bodies mm-hmm. and how they relate to one another, you made a proclamation about your own yeah. gender and sexuality. And you used a very inclusive, powerful term that has been reclaimed, which is queer, yeah. to identify your own identities um what made you make that proclamation at the time it was a word that i was just hearing i didn't know the actual history of it of being a slur once again on tumblr on twitter on instagram it's like i understood it as this word that was an umbrella word for anybody who fell under any spectrum whatever that was with gender or with sexuality And so for me, it was like, I'm a part of a generation that just doesn't believe in being like, I'm 100% this, I'm 100% that. And I wonder also why we have to do that, why we have to be like, I'm 100% this. And I notice this a lot with anybody who comes out as being a part of a queer spectrum relating to sexuality. Immediately, this happened with Lily Rose Depp. Immediately, Lily Rose Depp is gay. (laughs) You know, obviously, Frank no, Ocean she, as well. I remember. Frank Ocean is gay. All these people are gay. They're all gay. And it's like, no, they just said that this is a spectrum and they belong somewhere on that. They didn't tell explicitly where. But yeah, I think there's also this sort of sense with my generation in particular where it's like, I don't understand why I'm going to call myself straight or gay if I am just a person existing. So immediately after I did that, Gay. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, you So the guys. sound biting of your life happened <laughs> through all the headlines. Yeah. I'm like, whoa. I also didn't anticipate that it was going to be turned into like this headline and like this thing that I realized was being used more for clickbait rather than like an educated conversation surrounding this. So yeah. So what were the was, headlines? Disney Channel star. Comes out. <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> you guys. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was just really dramatic. Did you get any calls for that? Because in, in my calling... mind, in my imagining of, of how it works at Disney, yeah. this is just my imagining. There is like a machine that, you know, turns out these perfect long legged stars that can sing, act, be charismatic. Dance. Yeah, just do They're all just of perfect. <laughs> Yeah. And so when there's like a part of the veneer uh, that is cracked and becomes realistic in any way. Yeah. That then there is some kind of checking or reining in. Mm. And maybe this wasn't your experience, but this is in my imagining. Sure. I mean, I didn't get any specific calls from Disney. I don't believe. Actually, more than that, it was press outlets contacting just my manager and my publicist and were like we want to comment on this can we get a comment further on this it's and like i commented on twitter 
I'm like, I commented on it. Why do you guys all need like another piece? <laughs> like, what is this? Um, yeah, but I never really thought of myself as being like a Disney star. I would like to think of myself as an actress who was on Disney, but also works outside of Disney and as an activist and just as a person. <laughs> it's just like, so when I did that, I wasn't necessarily thinking of how they were going to react. And I think they kind of realized at some point, maybe during the middle of the show, that even if they told me, like, don't comment about this stuff, like, I was still going to do it somehow. <laughs> and I mean, I think in that way, we really exposed a lot of people who wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to it through lessons we shared on Girl Meets World. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're like the only Disney show that actually like used the word feminist, not like some word that's like not as definitive as that but like we use that word um, and how much of that was shaped through your own politics off screen they definitely overlapped because they knew how i felt and michael who's the creator of boy and girl uh is very passionate about these things like i am and we share a lot of the same beliefs and it was very important to me even though i didn't feel like i had as much as a voice when we first started as i did maybe in season two where i was able to be like i don't want to say this line and I don't want to do these things. And let's talk about why. And we would start having those conversations. And he made it a very safe place for me to be like, I'm not comfortable with having this situation where they make fun of her for being dumb or whatever. Like, if we're going to do that, let's do an episode about why they're calling her dumb. And we got away with a lot, I guess, for being on Disney. Because we just, we were very passionate about the things that we talked about. Because you've done shows on faith on yeah. autism yeah, and feminism, apparently. Yeah, I mean, we did episodes in a lot. We have a character who is autistic on the show, and that's, like, huge, <laughs> I guess, for a Disney show to have a character like that and just have it be something that's normalized and just, yeah, she's friends with all the other kids. I mean, she's slightly different than them, but they're all a little different from each other. I, d I don't feel like we did in a way that can feel exploitive because I think a lot of... Um, TV shows can kind of do the thing that we were talking about of like exploiting somebody's race or gender or identity like as far as it can go and I think we did it in a way where it was like all of these things are a part of this one larger thing and at the end of the day our main storyline is about friends. How much was the input that Michael your showrunner allowed you to have in this space on the show has that inspired you to then want to do other things than just act on screen? Yeah, I had to summon up the courage to be able to talk about it. And then once I did, it was like, no big deal. I think now I feel really confident, like how you were talking about, like to have conversations with directors I'm meeting or with writers and be like, yeah, let's talk about why this is like this. And maybe we can just work from there. So I feel like, you know, working with Michael. That's a hard thing to do, though. Yeah. You know, to under to understand your place. Yeah. You know, you're also a star of the show. I assume you're if it wasn't for seniority, you're at least the third person on the call sheet. So like there's power in yeah. that sense on a set, but to also then challenge, I, it took me years to come to that space of totally. being able to say, no, I'm not comfortable with doing this. Yeah. And this is why. And can we do this? Yeah. I guess there was this part of me that felt this kind of weird pressure that I guess it was pretty young for me to feel, but oh, you're an actress, so you kind of have to just go with it. And I realize that there are overlaps of being like, yes, I'm an actress, but at the same time, I'm well aware that whatever this message is that's being portrayed it will kind of get into somebody's subconscious. Uh, the points where I really had to talk about were uh, clothes, because 
actually they were really sensitive about that. I couldn't wear anything that was like too short or too tight or whatever. Um, was it a way to try to, to make you appear younger or more chaste or the obsession that we have around like purity? It probably had something to do with the purity part. That she's a good girl. She's a good girl. She's not a bad girl. She's <laughs> perfect girl and pure. World. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess that was um, conversations that I kind of internalized and was like, wait, I don't know if I'm totally comfortable with like a bunch of executives approving my outfit and I'm 12. Yeah, it's that was weird and kind of out of body. And so I feel it felt good at the end of the season to be like, I would kind of joke about it in a way that kind of got it. (laughs) I was like, you guys done? (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, just things. But they understood the conversation. I think we got to points where we were all able to kind of fall onto the same page. But I think Girl Meets World got away with a lot in particular because Michael hadn't worked for the channel before. And he was very intent on creating something that was relative to Boy Meets World in the sense of its honesty. And we didn't want to live in the kind of Disney hyper reality that can get projected. And the show's taking its bow. The show's taking its bow. It was just canceled in the beginning of December. Okay, so how does that feel? When it first happened, I guess I was really sad, but we kind of knew it was coming. They like to exercise control, obviously, and I think that they just don't have a full understanding of how people want to be talked to. And this is the main thing I look for when I'm reading anything or watching anything. I'm like, does this talk down to me? Does this think that I am stupid? And I would like to say that Girl Meets World doesn't think that teenagers are stupid, and that's why it was successful. Because it was like, no, you're just people. (laughs) It's like, it's not that huge of a difference. You just feel things more intensely. Um, But we're not going to like talk down to you and make you feel like you're stupid and over explain these jokes to you. I think Disney is a very specific market. The channel in specific has a very specific brand that they want to uphold. And I think they're afraid that people just are more advanced than they think they are. Uh, which and that they they're are. talking to a generation that is a lot more diverse and yeah. a lot more educated around yeah. these issues and kind of want to see content that yeah. reflects their lived experiences, the lived experiences that they have specifically, I, I think, online as well. Totally. I mean, it was just really, really, really important for me to go on Disney and like, I don't want to make, you know, just something that's thought of as like a typical Disney show. Like I want to make something that's really good. And there was always this kind of weird burden. Like, what are you working on? Oh, Girl Meets World, what channel is it on Disney? But it's like, not what you think. (laughs) Um, And then Zendaya said this thing in an interview, which I thought was really smart, where she was like, everybody asks me why I'm still on Disney Channel, but it's because like, it really matters to me to make really good content for kids and to see themselves and see themselves being represented and see stories about them that, you know, they wouldn't otherwise see on other children's shows. So I thought that was a very smart comment because I do think that was part of the reason why we were doing Girl was to just make sure that, you know, this generation was being taken care of. And so does that passion to make content, does that translate to you beyond acting? Yeah, I want to write and direct really, really bad. Um, I've been shadowing Ava DuVernay a little bit. I know you're working with her on Wrinkle in Time. Yeah, I'm working with her on Wrinkle in Time. Have you seen Oprah on set yet? (laughs) I 
haven't seen Oprah. I think she's in her trailer every single time I'm like there and I just kind of walk past and like I have to withhold myself to not knock on the door. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, it's Oprah. <laughs> but her and Ava are like besties. No, I know. I, yeah. I see the photos in Hawaii. I see. Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm They're all like over that relationship. Friends. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, what's it like working with Oprah? <laughs> she's been so incredibly generous and I just kind of asked her one day I was like can I shadow you and she's like absolutely so something that separates Ava from every other director I've worked with is that she knows the name of every single person on set wow you know how rare that is just to care so much about the crew and about every single job. And she's constantly, you know... And it sets a standard for the way in which you're going to treat people while you're working absolutely, together. Absolutely. I think, especially on, on movie sets and show sets, but more movie sets, the pace of the entire movie goes by whoever's at the top. So, I mean, Ava, kind to everybody. So... Everybody on that set, every crew member communicates with each other. And then the whole entire thing is like an easier process. So being on that set is really, really wonderful and encouraging and really amazing to watch something really historic be happening in such a way that's just so beautiful and exciting. And And I wish I could tell you more. I know. I'm like, Um, what's your role? I know everything is probably under wraps and you probably can't share too much about. I think I can share a little bit. I play Meg's bully. You playing who? Meg Murray's bully. My character is not in the book, but she's just kind of an addition that they gave to create more backstory for Meg and more context for her character. But yeah, Meg is played by Storm Reed, who's just this wonderful, adorable actress. And the cast is really awesome. And being able to have my first director that I get to shadow be like a woman who's helming this $100 million project is like amazing. And I feel very lucky. But it was also very inspiring to, I kind of sat down, I talked with her script supervisor because they've been working together for so long now. And the first thing that they ever did was this extremely low budget film. And when Ava talks about that, she's like, it's very hard for me to watch, but I know I had to make it to be able to make this. And she's so loyal that she's been working with the same script supervisor since that first project to now. And they're on the set together and they've totally grown and like blossomed together and realized their passions. But I think that's something that might be more specific to female directors rather than male directors because of like the constant marginalization. You kind of know your people and you have friends and you kind of stay with those people. So I think almost that loyalty that Eva has was kind of forced upon her by constantly being told, you can't do this, you can't do this. So just finding like the people that she trusted. And how has that inspired you in making your next steps? It's Because you want to write, you want to direct. I, I think direct. I read that your dream, maybe this is an old dream, is to go to... <laughs> Columbia Journalism School? Am I making this up? No longer journalism school, but still Columbia. Um, I want to go to a film school now at Columbia, but that could change too. I really, really want to make films. And I I do think if I hadn't seen and heard of Gia Coppola and Sofia Coppola and Ava um, and female directors, and I probably wouldn't have said I wanted to direct because I actually remember having a conversation maybe four or five years ago where somebody asked me if I want to direct and I was like nope nope not for me mm-hmm. and now being on a set I almost have to get myself out of like a director's head I guess because I'm like looking at like how everything looks visually and then yeah I really 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 want to direct are, are there stories within you that you want to direct and tell yeah I think Something that my friend and I are kind of working on right now. Exciting. Yeah. Uh, 
within a horror genre, I think there's a lot that um, hasn't been shown of girls in horror. And uh, beyond being chased, beyond and being chased and screamed at and being killed. <laughs> I think one of the most dangerous relationships in the world is the relationship between women because it's so powerful and so destructive and amazing, but is also very dangerous. Audre Lorde said it, right? Yes. Women are, women powerful, are powerful and dangerous. dangerous. <laughs> um, and exactly. So I really want to explore like the horror genre in that way. Was there a film that made you want to act or that were just like kind of made it look like it was possible? Yes. I remember seeing My Fair Lady and Breakfast at Tiffany's and Roman Holiday and Audrey Hepburn's movies and being like, wow, yeah, mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. Like, I want to have that power. Like, oh, my God, that looks like a superpower. Because I think what made Audrey very specific to the time was that she was, A, an activist. B, she was doing... I don't know much of her activism. I've been obsessed with her literally since I was five. So, like, I know a bunch of weird trivia about her. But she was a part of a uh, Nazi resistance group, which was kind of a huge secret because her parents were um, sympathizers. And she's had a very interesting life. She suffered a lot of miscarriages that kind of affected the films that she chose to make. She spent basically the last like 10, 15 years of her life doing humanitarian work for UNICEF. So she's always been somebody like, I have her autograph up in my room, her real autograph. I cried when I got it. How did you get that? I (laughs) saved up a lot of money for it. I know my dream is I the the gift that I always want to get myself is the first edition copy of Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Oh my God. Can you find that? They're online, but they're not like, they're kind of like ratty. They're not. Yeah, sketchy. And they're very expensive. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. But one day, one day I'll get it. Manifest it. This is a full moon today. <laughs> so that, so that you know, that relatively younger yeah. self who was watching, I was all, almost going to say Audrey Lord movies. Um, yes. <laughs> Audrey That's Hepburn my movies. favorite mashup. Oh, my God. When will your faves ever? <laughs> so your younger self that was watching, you know, Audrey Hepburn movies, what would yeah. you what would you say to her as she's as she's yeah. thinking and grappling and grappling with wanting to have a career, wanting to be outspoken, wanting to be unapologetic and brazen. What would you say to her? I cried every single time I didn't get something because I get really, really emotionally attached to characters, even when I'm just like reading a script. And so if I don't get it, I'm like, oh, my God, this is myself and you're taking her away from me. But um, even from a young age, I remember having those feelings. So I guess I would say to her, gonna be all right you're gonna find something but I guess I would also say that like I don't know even though I was younger I wouldn't say that like that discredits what I was feeling which was like this very passionate thing of like this is this character and I just really want to like inhabit this like I understand how this is supposed to sound so I would say you're gonna get what you want and you're gonna do really good at it (laughs) so yeah (laughs) and how excited are you to finally I guess in a couple of years to have the obsession with your age to be kind of behind you. I was actually thinking about this the other day because I have always been the baby. One of my closest friends is 30 and uh, we are all like very, very close. And one of my other best friends is 15. But at the same time, I've just always been kind of the youngest, but able to kind of keep up with everybody. Do you have like a certain age that you feel like you're going to catch up to? Like right now you're like, I've always felt that I was like always 27 and then I got 27. And then I was like, I feel like I'm finally there where like my mental capacity and my body caught up. 
and they're on the same plane. I don't know. Maybe you have. I don't know. I saw a medium <laughs> who told me that by the time I'm 18, I'm going to be where 28 year olds are. And she was like, you're not going to date anybody until you're 18. And just because you're thinking a lot. <laughs> I was like, yeah, probably. What's wrong with spending time just thinking? What's wrong with spending time just thinking? I like taking my thoughts out for a date. <laughs> um, yeah, but I guess I'm a little excited. And there's a part of me that's like, but I love being the baby of like my friends. But I guess I'll always be the baby of my friends because hopefully my friends will stick with me if they don't get sick of me. So <laughs> I don't think anyone can get sick of you, Rowan. Oh, Janet. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with me on this podcast. Thank it was such you. a pleasure to talk with you. And I cannot wait to see you walking through Columbia. My mom's your, like, yes. I was going to say with all your films in hand, but I guess that that's not how it works anymore. It's digital. <laughs> it's see digital. how old I am. <laughs> oh, so old. <laughs> no electricity, no cars. The no old days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Janet. I just really want to thank Rowan Blanchard for sharing herself, for giving us insights, for kind of making me realize that there's a comparison between Audre Lorde and Audrey Hepburn. Amazing, right? Now here's Lena Dunham, my executive producer, to give you a little hint about next week's guest. She's making politics her bitch. That's next week on Never Before. Never Before is a product of Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. It was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman, Ricky Novetsky, Josh Gwynn, and Liz Watson. Our executive producer is Lena Dunham. Special thanks to Max Linsky and Ben Cooley. Our music is by Hans Del Sue. 